Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And, uh, man, it's Friday already. And that means that we're going to try to finish out the week strong. We've had fantastic guests all week, and uh, we're going to continue that with uh, William Hemsworth. It's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. And we're actually going to talk about a very fascinating topic, and that is the role of apostolic succession and sacred tradition during one of the greatest crises in the church, and that is the Arian crisis. You know, uh, it was uh, one that took off uh, almost the entire uh, Christian body, like almost became Arian, and it was only through... uh, Great saints that uh, was able to beat back the Aaron heresy. And uh, so William is going to be sharing with us how apostolic succession and also sacred tradition played a major role in vanquishing this error. And so uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. He's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. And that is our exercises. Uh, Today's Friday, so therefore, instead of the finding the fallacy being an informal fallacy, a logical fallacy, we're going to jump to do a propaganda technique. In today's propaganda technique is the appeal to plain folk. Appeal to plain folk. Not your average run-in-the-mill plain folk uh, propaganda either. It's used quite a bit. And we also meet an early church father. Today's early church father, coincidentally enough, actually uh, was very instrumental within that whole Aryan crisis, and that is St. Cyril of Jerusalem. So, hey, we got all our uh, cards stacked in a deck, and so we're ready to roll on Hands-On Apologetics. And to start off, I want to welcome all of you watching live stream, all our social media outlets, and also want to welcome all of you listening on radio and also via podcast. Great to have you on board, folks. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for your emails, too, by the way. Uh, As you know, 
you can always email me, uh, Gary Machuda, at questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's the official dojo mailbox. And I do answer them. Uh, not always timely, but I do get around to answering them. But I just love hearing from you. And uh, also, by the way, if you email me, let me know where you're from, because that's kind of cool just to see the outreach of the program. Um, let's see. Also, it is October 1st, which means that uh, halfway through October, I'm going to release my book, Revolt Against Reality. I'm super stoked about the book. And... Uh, I can't wait for it to come out, start promoting it. And since um, since I'm on the show, I'm going to be uh, giving some um, detailed information about the book that you will know before it's even released and get an inside glimpse into uh, all the research that I've done over a number of years now where I try to trace the roots of the current insanity that we live in to uh you know to its predecessors and where does it really come from so i can't wait for that to happen um also uh by the way uh, i also want to direct you to uh virginmostpowerfulradio.org that is our flagship website and you know we're doing evangelism we're doing apologetics and what better way to do that than to share programs and tell people about virgin most powerful radio and one way that you could do that is just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, which is the official website, and uh, bam, you can access all the shows of Hands-On Apologetics and all the other great shows Virgin Most Powerful produces right there on the website. All you have to do is just click on it, and uh, you could do all sorts of stuff with the shows. You could download it, you could share with friends, you could post them. And so if you find something that is of interest, please do, because that furthers our mission, and it also helps people access some really great information. So please do that, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. All right, so let's see. Um, let's jump to the Finding Fallacy. Now, today's Finding Fallacy, of course, is a propaganda technique. The difference between the two, an informal fallacy, is a wrong way of arguing. Propaganda technique doesn't argue at all. It's just a way of sneaking in. Uh, and persuading people by manipulating them to accept or believe or teach or, or buy something, I should say. And so it, it ha doesn't deal with arguments at all. And so today's propaganda technique is the appeal to plain folk. Appeal to plain folks is a form of propaganda and a logical fallacy also. The plain folks argument is one in which the speaker presents themselves as the average Joe. A common person who can understand and empathize with the listener's concerns. Uh, the most important part of the appeal is the speaker's portrayal, portraying themselves as had had a similar experience with the listener and knows why they may be skeptical or cautious about accepting this speaker's point of view. In this way, the speaker gives the audience a sense of trust and comfort, believing that the speaker and the audience share common goals and that they should agree with the speaker. So um, <clears throat> this happens an awful lot, especially, I think, in the political campaigns. Uh, how many times have we seen <coughs> excuse me, candidates dress up in overalls and end up, you know, chatting with the country folk in some, uh, you know, some small town out in the middle of nowhere, laughing and joking and having serious conversation? Well, that whole thing is meant to convey the message that the candidate is exactly like you. 
just a plain, ordinary Joe, no different from anybody else. And so you could trust them. So you have the same views. Uh, you can be comfortable with them. And, of course, uh, it's all uh, usually a, a dog and pony show. I mean, they normally would never be caught dead <laughs> in in some area of the country like that, uh, fraternizing with ordinary Joes, in my humble opinion. But nevertheless, it is a way to persuade people without actually arguing anything. It's just a question of costumes and and uh, settings and, uh, you know, framing uh the the photo shoot the right way um, this is very powerful like I said in politics in advertising uh, you see this as well Th does it occur in apologetics I um, honestly I can't really think of an instance where it is used but that doesn't mean it isn't used um, I wouldn't put it past somebody to to try to use the appeal to plain folks to uh, to promote some sort of religious view as well. So that's something to keep in mind. And of course, the thing with propaganda techniques is once you realize it's being used, it's magic's gone. It has no effect on you. In fact, it usually has the opposite effect. And uh, all right, so let's jump to meet our early church father for today, who is St. Cyril of Jerusalem. The place and date of his birth is unknown, but Jerusalem uh, and sometime around 315 is usually the conjecture. He was made Bishop of Jerusalem in 348 A.D. He was consecrated, consecrated by the popular Bishop Acacius, Metropolitan of Caesarea, but unfortunately Acacius was an Arian, and suspicions began to settle upon Cyril as if he had made a doctoral concession in order to obtain his appointment. Yet, uh, as soon it came into conflict with Acacius and the Arians, and he was an ardent defender of Nicaea. Although Cyril generally preferred the term homoousius instead of homoousius, and let me stop right there to explain it, the controversy is whether the son is like the father or whether the son is of the same substance or consubstantial with the father. And for time, you could use either term in an orthodox sense. So Cyril actually preferred the term like the father, although he wasn't necessarily against of the same substance as the father. Uh, but he was one who understood the term in an orthodox sense, not orthodox enough for the orthodox and not Aryan enough for the Aryans. So it's no wonder that his career was a stormy one, says Jurgen's faith early fathers, and that he was expelled three times from his see. At least he enjoyed peace in his declining years, regaining his see in 378 AD after the death of the Emperor Velens and he continued in Jerusalem unmolested until his death in 386. He's best known for his work, which is called Catechetical Lectures, and this is something us apologists use a lot, except for the letter to Constantius, a homily on John 5.5, 5, and four short fragments of other homilies, the only genuine writing of Cyril, which has survived the ages, is the Catechetical Lectures. Lectures are 24 in number, the first one being an introductory discourse, and the rest being numbered from 1 to 23. Of these, the first 18 are pre-baptismal discussions, or discourses, delivered to the Illuminati during Lent, and the last five delivered to the Neophytes during Easter week, and on the liturgical ceremonies of the three sacraments which they had received during Easter vigil. 
the lectures have been uh, delivered as early as 347 or 348, when Cyril was yet a simple priest, but much more probably it was delivered around 350 AD, by which time he succeeded Maximus in the Sea of Jerusalem. And perhaps it's no, no, excuse me. And perhaps it's worthwhile noting that the lectures were delivered orally, and were taken down short by shorthand. Uh, the form of which has come down to us then is really a transcript of someone in the uh, from the audience, and it's not actually Cyril's own manuscript, which is very interesting. So we kind of have a, uh, I guess, a pew side. Uh, audience with St. Cyril whenever we read the catechetical lectures. And uh, I hear the music coming up, and that means uh, that is our early church father, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. And it also means we're coming up to a break, folks. So coming up on the other side, we're going to be chatting with our good friend William Hemsworth, talk about the Arian controversy and how apostolic succession and sacred Stay tuned, folks. More to come. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR and may God richly bless you and your family. Did you know my mom's going to have a baby? She is. Will it be a boy? Or will it be a girl? We don't know yet, but we heard the heartbeat, and my dad said this is going to be someone very special. You mean like being a president? Or maybe a doctor? Well, probably maybe like a singer or dancer, I think. Hello, my name is Marianne Koharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America. We know that every baby is a miracle and has the potential to do great things. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of alternatives or assistance or would like to support the work of Pro-Life Across America, please call 1-800-366-7773 or visit our website at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Pro-Life Across America is non-political and totally educational. Pro-Life Across America This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. 
And welcome back, everybody, Hands on Apologetics. And we're going to be talking about the Aryan controversy and uh, exactly what was some of the weapons the church used to fight back this heresy, help us do that. We have our good friend, Master Apologist William Hemsworth with us. William is a former ordained Baptist and Lutheran who uh, converted to Catholicism while attending seminary. He's always been a father of four who is passionate about passing on the faith. You're probably already familiar with a lot of the things he does. For example, you can go to WilliamHemsworth.com. And he also has a fantastic YouTube channel that you should check out. It's called The Bible Catholic. And uh, William, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Well, Gary, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. How have you been? Oh, I'm doing well, just fighting some allergy stuff. You know, it's that time of year here in Michigan. <laughs> How are things in Arizona? It's kind of the same here. We got through our rainy season. Now stuff's drying out. Now the allergies are starting. So it's kind of how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't escape it. Yeah. So uh, this is a really interesting topic. Uh, Ar- uh, the Aryan heresy. What was the Aryan heresy about? Working down to its simplest form, the Arian heresy was the idea that Christ was not always eternal, that some way, somehow he was different than the Father. Um, that's its most basic function. Some of those beliefs are still around today. We can talk about those later on. But it was a very damning heresy. It was one that, I mean, people grabbed onto because Arius was a real charismatic guy. But, yeah, it... it it was uh, it threatened to tear the church apart, really. So Arius's view had that Christ was a created being, and he had tendencies that created beings may have, and so he looked to Proverbs chapter eight uh, for for his scriptural support. And so he goes through Proverbs uh, eight twenty two, for example, says, "The Lord created me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old." And of course, our listeners may know Proverbs chapter eight talks about you know, the wisdom of God. And of course, Jesus, we know as personified wisdom and all that. So Arius kind of latched onto that and he started getting some support because he was a really good speaker. Um, he And he lined everything with just enough orthodoxy that people would buy into it. And it led them, to, it could really lead them to destruction later on. And so his bishop and a lot of other bishops, of course, even before Nicaea saw this as a, as a big problem. And so they set out to correct it. Right. Yeah. And it's also attracted the pagans too, because right. it kind of made Jesus into a created demigod, you know, that there was a time where the sun was not. And, and so, uh, you know, pagans could sign on as well. So that was also attractive. I imagine, especially right. for the emperor, because, uh, you know, it's a, a form of Christianity that seemed to appeal to uh, a good portion of the empire. Right, so it kind of corresponded to what the empire taught, and so maybe, maybe in some way they could assimilate this version of Christianity that maybe they don't have to persecute, they don't have to try to stamp out because maybe they can get in just enough to try to bring people over. It was it was just a big problem all around, and unfortunately, it's in some ways we're dealing with it today. Like I said, but the bishops they did a lot of work during that time to try to stamp it out. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, old heresies never die. They just Unfortunately fade, not. fade and turn into something slightly different. They, they, they get repackaged. That's, That's what they right. do. Yes. Yeah, very good. So, okay. Uh, well, where do you want to start uh, looking at this controversy? 
Well, maybe we could start with maybe what apostolic succession is and maybe what sacred tradition is, because sometimes we get the idea that it's either or, but they work together, really. Mm -hmm. And so they it all they're both synonymous with the Greek word uh, didioke to, to teach. So tradition involves teaching, um, but it's a little more than that. It's it's linked to the person from whom that teaching comes from. And so Benedict the Sixteenth, um, he, he said this in his book Apostolic Succession. He says, linked to a person, tradition is linked to a person. It's a living word that has its concrete reality in faith. And so succession is proclaiming something that has been entrusted to someone by our Lord himself. And so in apostolic succession, we have that lineage, but that lineage isn't exclusive from teaching. They, they go hand in hand. So I think that's important to understand. You can't have one without the other. Mm. And when, in regard to the Arian controversy, um, you know, apostolic succession is holding fast to the apostolic word, just as tradition means the continuing existence of that witness. And again, that's a quote from Benedict the 16th. And so they, they exist in defining each other. And so succession is a form of the tradition and tradition is also the content of the succession. Hmm. So I would just have to reiterate, they're not exclusive from each other. They're there in a cohesive unit to teach what the Lord and his apostles have passed down uh, from the beginning of the faith. Yeah, that's important because I, I know in apologetics and my, in myself as well, it's really easy to see those as two entirely distinct and separate entities, right? The succession of bishops and then the passing on of the faith. So that, that's really good to keep in mind that they're actually, you know, they're very closely united to one another. Right. And the catechism talks about this as well. And fairly early on in the catechism, starting in paragraph 74. No, it says, God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all nations and individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. Then the catechism goes on to say that this happens through apostolic tradition, and it continues on in apostolic succession. And that's in the paragraph 77 through 79, if anyone wants to check it out. So... The church puts this really early on in the catechism because it's very important. We have this tradition, and then we have, of course, the apostles passing it on. Of course, we read about that in Timothy, what St. Paul has the laying on of hands. And we have that later on. We read about that through Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Polycarp, Irenaeus in his work against heresies, where he says the true church could trace its lineage back to the apostles. So this is this is not something that's novel. It wasn't some medieval invention that the church had. It goes back to scripture. It's passed on through the apostolic fathers, through the patristics, all the way down to today. So that, I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. And some of those, some of these quotes, Gary, I have a couple of them lined up. If we can go through them, sure. Um, of course, Athanasius we'll talk about a little later. But for example, um, Anthony of Egypt. He writes, Wherefore, keep yourselves all the more untainted by them and observe the tradition of the fathers and chiefly the holy faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which you have learned from Scripture and of which you have often been put in mind by me. So here he's given a portrayal of what the church has always taught. Okay, that Scripture and tradition, they go hand in hand and that all tradition 
which is he's talking about the teachings of the church here, have been passed on from someone else. Because at this point, remember, Scripture has not been codified yet. The Council of Rome has not been held yet, where we have the canon of Scripture in the earliest part of the church age. And even with one other point, in regard to St. Athanasius, which plays a key role in the Arian controversy, of course, he had the his festal letter, which he gives a listing of books. That happened in 367. And of course, this whole Arian thing happened between 300 and 325. So that was even before that. And so we can we can deem something very important from that false teaching, false teachers, false heresies in general, try to use scripture. They twist it. And St. Peter warns us about that in his letters as well, where he's writing of the letters of Paul that people twist them to their own destruction. And so without the guiding force of the church, we, we have to have that without that guiding force of the church, we could easily be led in error. And that's kind of what these early Christological heresies did is they went outside the bounds of the church, the bounds that the church established. And they still use scripture to say, Hey, this is what the Bible says. Instead of looking at all of scripture and the interpretation that the church had from the beginning. So it went away from that tradition. So Clement of Alexandria, let's see here. He writes, those then that adhere to impious words and dictate them to others, inasmuch as they do not make a right but a perverse use of the divine words, neither themselves enter into the kingdom of heaven, nor permit those whom they have deluded to attain the truth, but not having the key of entrance, the keys of the kingdom, but a false, a counterfeit key by which they do not enter in as we enter in, through the tradition of the Lord, by drawing aside the curtain, but bursting through the side door and digging clandestinely through the wall of the church and stepping over the truth, they constitute themselves the mystagogues of the souls of the impious. And those are pretty strong words yeah, <laughs> from, right. from Clement of Alexandria about how we have to stay within that tradition that was passed down through the succession. So in that one paragraph, we have uh, the keys, you know, could be the keys of Peter, the keys, you know, what... Mm-hmm. What you re- what you receive from me, you know, you pass on, but it's calling it a counterfeit key, and it, it's it's fascinating when you think about that word, a counterfeit key, because how many counterfeit keys have happened throughout history? I mean, you could look through the Protestant Reformation, of course, you could look to the Arian heresy, uh, you could look to all these various Christological heresies out there, Nestorianism, all these counterfeit keys, they strayed from the tradition that the church has always taught, and so I think that's important to lay out in the beginning yeah yeah and then what an apt metaphor too because a uh, counterfeit key of course doesn't open any doors and uh, right and uh so in th- these heresies are often they end up in a dead end you know it just it doesn't make sense of the the faith as a whole right so it may make you feel good to have the key yeah it may make you feel really good to have the key it may look pretty it may look nice but if it doesn't do anything it has no value and that's what these heresies do. If you don't have a right view of who Christ is, you're going to lead dead end. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one enters the kingdom except through him. And if you have a false idea of who he is, and you're holding on to the false counterfeit Christ key, if you will, of who he is, it's not going to unlock anything. And you're not going to enter into the door that the true key unlocks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, those are chilling words from Clement of Alexandria. Uh, 
especially that last line uh, about it is <laughs> mystagogy. Was it evil? Is that the last? Uh, mist- let's see, mystagogy, mystagogues of the souls of the impious. There we go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty strong words. Right. And if we can do one more before the break, St. Cyprian, he, he also has something to say. He says, for if we return to the head and source of d- divine tradition, human error ceases. And this behooves the priests of God to do now, if they would keep the divine precepts, that if in any respect the truth have wavered and facilitated, we should return to our original and Lord and to the evangelical and apostolic tradition, and thence may arise the ground of our action whence has taken rise both our order and our origin. So if we stick to the tradition that's been passed on, our human error ceases. So I think that's something very powerful too. Absolutely. We're chatting with William Hemsworth of uh, williamshemsworth.com and also the purveyor of a fantastic YouTube channel, The Bible Catholic. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands on Apologetics. This is a minute meditation from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. John chapter 6 verses 48 to 50. Saint Catherine of Siena once said, How sad it is when those who have food before them, let themselves die of hunger. Take your food, the loving Lord Jesus, who was crucified for us. Dear Heavenly Father, let us never go hungry for spiritual food. Help us to receive your Son often, in Holy Communion, so that we may be brought together with you, in the union of the Holy Spirit. This has been a Minute Meditation from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Jesus said in Luke 17, When you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have only done our duty. According to St. John of the Cross, God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites the Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow! That's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US1. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, purveyor of the the Bible Catholic on YouTube and also WilliamHemsworth.com. And we're talking about the Aryan crisis and also the role of apostolic succession and also sacred tradition. And, uh, yeah, some really great points, William. You know, first that uh, succession and sacred tradition really should be seen a lot closer and interrelated than we usually look at. And then, of course, you have the early church fathers who talk about how important it is to maintain both of those, right, in order right. to stay away from error. Right. And and we see that play out during the early days of this of this crisis in the church. Um, so it, Arius, for example, he was a student of Lucian of Alexandria. And while he was studying, he became friends with Eusebius of Nicomedia, not the church historian Eusebius. I have to always have to clear that up because for some reason that was a popular name back then. Uh, <laughs> this, Eusebi- this Eusebius, um, he plays an important role in the promulgation of the heresy though, which is kind of shocking when I was researching this a couple years ago. Um, so Arius was a priest. He was ordained in Alexandria in about 311, give or take a year or so. Like I said, he was a very charismatic guy and people are drawn to charisma. People are drawn to outgoing personalities and that's kind of what he was. But he came to openly challenge his bishop, his bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, Alexandria, in regard to the Trinity. So those are kind of the early days of this heresy. But um, m- many of the locals relate, relied, they kind of rallied behind, behind Arius because of his persuasiveness as a public speaker. And like I said, he used, he used verses such as Proverbs chapter 8 in his, in his teaching. And like you said, Gary, at the top of the break, at, at the last segment, the pagans kind of rallied behind this, the subordination, how somehow Jesus was not the same as God the Father. And that was easy for them to grasp. Mm-hmm. And so Arius's view was, was Christ was a created being. He had the tendencies that created beings have. And that could mean that Jesus was even liable to change or even to sin. And of course, that's a big problem because if Jesus sinned, really a sacrifice on the cross for us, what good is it? Right. Okay. St. Athanasius sums up the views of Arius quite nicely. And I have to point out, the the writings of Arius were later burned, but they're, but, Air, but um, Eusebius and St. Athanasius preserve a good portion of them mm-hmm. in, their, in their own writings. And this is one of them. Um, let's see here. This is what Arius wrote. For what can they say from it, but that God was not always a father? but became so afterwards. The son was not always, for he was not before his generation. He is not from the father, but he as others has come into subsistence out of nothing. He is not proper to the father's essence, for he is a creature and work. And Christ is not very God, but he as others was made God by participation. The son is not exact knowledge of the father, nor does the word see the father perfectly and neither exactly understands nor knows the Father. He is not the very and only word of the Father, but is the name only called word in wisdom, and is called by grace, son, and power. He's not unalterable, as the Father is, but alterable in nature, as the creatures, and he comes short of apprehending the perfect knowledge of the Father. There's a lot of problems in that statement from Arius. (laughs) We could probably probably spend a whole show on it. 
But look, look yeah. at some of the keys. The sun was not always. Okay, that's a big problem since Jesus has always existed, especially as, as, as a second person of the Blessed Trinity. Christ is not very God, meaning he and the Father are not of the same essence. Let's see, he was made God by participation. Maybe, maybe you can even go into adoptionism in this case. Maybe he was just a good man who followed the Torah perfectly, and after he was baptized, the Son of the, the Spirit of the Messiah descended on him. There's all kinds of problems with this statement here. This is why this is why this heresy is so dangerous. And of course, we see it today in you know Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, even Mormonism. In some cases, if you it's logical conclusion and modernism, even we can get into that a little later. But the fathers had a real good response to this, okay? When, but when we look at this, Gary, we have this tendency to go right to Nicaea. And it, it's a logical conclusion, but we could look. There's so much more to the church's response. Arius's bishop, Alexander, was very concerned because of the teaching that one of his priests was giving. As we could see from that last paragraph I read, there's a lot of problems there that could lead people astray. It has eternal consequences. If they're wooed by the doctrine, they could even be damned. I mean, big there's big time issues going on. Now, Alexander admits that he he initially ignored this because he was hoping it would just die out on its own. But that wasn't the case. When he started getting the support of Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia, um, he had to he had to go into action. And so this is what this is what Arius's bishop wrote. But seeing that Eusebius, now of Nicomedia, who thinks that the government of the church rests with him because retribution has not come upon him for his desertion of Baratus, which was the place he was previously bishop, which was in what we know as Lebanon now, when he had cast an eye of desire on the church from the Nicomedians, begins to support these apostates and has taken upon him to write letters everywhere on their behalf, if by any means he may draw in certain ignorant persons to this most base and anti-Christian heresy. So Aries's bishop took some fairly quick action, especially when another bishop got involved. Now, mm-hmm. Alexander is using sacred tradition that's passed down by his authority here. He's trying to correct the situation. He called a local synod, and this local synod unanimously condemned Arius. And letters were sent out to the surrounding bishops to inform them of the synod's conclusion. But this didn't end it, sadly. So the way that Alexander pleaded the case for Arius, the case against Arius, I'm sorry, it was, it was kind of brilliant, really. So this is what Alexander's argument was kind of polemical, but it was effective. This is He said that Arius denied the immutability of the father by saying that he was not immutable until the son was created. Huh. Now, for those who may not be aware, immutable means that you can't change. And this is a scripture, this is a scriptural idea. So immutable means that God is unchangeable. And so Malachi 3 6 says, For I the Lord do not change. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of using scripture in a way. He's using scripture against what Arius did. Now, according to Alexander, this is a quote from him. Now, when Arius and his fellows made these assertions and shamelessly avowed them, we being assembled with the bishops of Egypt and Libya, nearly a hundred in number, anathematized both them and their followers. 
So they were using their authority that was passed down, anathematized those who were following this heresy. So these 100 bishops exercised their authority that they received by apostolic succession to anathematize Arius and those who were following him. Now, Mm -hmm. this teaching, obviously, especially from the paragraph I read from Arius, is totally contrary to what the apostles taught. It was risking souls. The early fathers had no choice but to exercise this authority. Um, According to the Synod, there was one view of Christ which was handed down directly from the apostles. But as you know, Gary, and some of our listeners know, this wouldn't be the end of that heresy. Though the Synod had a near unanimous ruling, some of the some of the Eastern bishops were kind of split. But we look back on this event now, and of course we say that it's a serious situation, but a schism this early into the church, it could have been really disastrous. I mean, of course, schisms would come later on, but imagine a schism that early in the church. Right. Um, now, of course, this is where Emperor Constantine comes in. And for those who don't know, Emperor Constantine is the patron saint of anti-Catholic conspiracy theories. Okay. Had to throw a little joke in there for a listener. <laughs> but the Catholic Church did not start with Constantine, okay? And that's not where I'm going. But he was the emperor at the time. And a, her- and a schism in the church also would have split the empire. So that's what that was kind of his motive. He heard of this controversy from his bishop. Um, his bishop was named Hosius, H-O-S-I-U-S. And regarding this, the sacred, the church historian Socrates Scholasticus, no relationist, the philosopher, Socrates right. Scholasticus writes, to this end, we send a letter to Alexander and Arius by a trustworthy person named Hosius, who was bishop of Cordova in Spain and whom the emperor greatly loved and held in high estimation. And so Constantine needed Christianity to be unified because the Roman Empire was already starting to crumble a little bit. So he needed Christianity to be a cohesive unit. And so this is where Nicaea comes in. Okay, Nicaea has nothing to do with the canon of Scripture, like some people are going to say. It has everything to do with the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, all that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this would, come, this would become known as uh, the Council of Nicaea, the First Council. And it, con- it convened in 325. And it really set a precedent for other ecumenical councils. The council was so important that all other councils would reference it as being important. Okay, so that's kind of a good indicator how important it was. Now, it was made up of 318 bishops. Um, Now, the pope wasn't the pope wasn't able to be there. And so some people will use this as saying they know the pope didn't have any authority. He was just too old to make the trip. And church historian William Carroll says, so this is what he writes. The recommendation for a general or ecumenical council had probably already been made to Constantine by Hosius and most probably to Pope Sylvester as well. Hosius presided over its deliberations. He probably and two priests of Rome certainly came as representatives of the Pope. He was just too old to make the trip. We didn't have air. There was no airplanes or cars back then. It was a big time trip. It took a lot of time and it was grueling. So this is where St. Athanasius enters into the picture, though. And so he was a brilliant theologian, and he argued from Scripture the case of Christ, the case that Christ is eternal. Hmm. And so he argued that terms in Scripture such as was handed over do not imply that the Son was not divine. And so the Council of Fathers rallied behind Athanasius, 
because he was preaching the faith that had been handed on to them. And I heard the music, so I'll leave it there, Gary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. And it's a good place to stop, too. We're chatting with William Hemsworth uh, of the Catholic Bible Channel, talking about Arian heresy. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. a great way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Do you have an old car you want to get rid of, motorcycle, RV, or boat? Simply call 855-500-7433, and when they sell that vehicle, a portion of that money comes right back to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It's an easy way to do it. I want to thank you for it. Call 855-500-7433. God love you and your family. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, you that's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the divine mercy chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys for everything. Everybody else, man, get on fire! Fight for the truth, man. You know what I'm telling you guys. There's I love it. Out there. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites the Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow, that's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation... Call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on Apologetics. We're finishing out the week strong with our good friend, Master Apologist William Hemsworth of the Bible Catholic, also WilliamHemsworth.com. Check out all his great stuff, by the way. We're talking about the Arian uh, controversy and how the church met the controversy. And right before the break, William, you were sharing about the Council of Nicaea and how Athanasius kind of saves the day in a way. Right, he sure did. And he had one argument that really struck to the heart of Arius's argument. And he said, quote, It is plain, therefore, to everyone that not knowing is proper to the flesh, whereas the Logos, insofar as he is the Logos, knows all things even before their origination. 
Now, only God knows all things before their origination. So Jesus has always been eternal. He knows all things because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's part of, he's God. Okay. Yeah. So it's a statement of deity and it had been passed on from the beginning of the church. So that's really how apostolic succession and sacred tradition played a role because that was the, that was a death blow to Arius's argument there. Mm-hmm. See, because both sides were appealing to scripture. Okay. And I said that uh, a couple segments ago, most all heresies appeal to scripture in one way or another. They isolate it. They isogeate it from its context, from its known interpretation, and they spin it off and create something wholly new out of it that didn't exist from the beginning. And so Athanasius is calling them on it. And it was, and it was, it was agreed that Arianism needed to be condemned. And of course you, you talked about at the top of the show with meeting the church father. This is where the, the word homoousios comes from. Okay. It's right. from Nicaea. And so that the son is of the same substance or is consubstantial with the father. And we see that we say that every Sunday at mass in the Nicene creed. The, the church wasn't novel in doing this. Okay. The church just didn't say, Oh, now this is a new teaching. We're just going to put it in the creed. No, this is something that was always there. It's something that the church had always taught that Jesus is God. Yeah. The same is the same essence as God, the father, same essence as God, the Holy spirit. It's all there all from the beginning. Are you telling us that uh, Dan Brown was wrong when he said that Nicaea voted for Christ to be divine and won by like only a vote? <laughs> I he I have to say this: Dan Brown is a uh, pretty good fiction writer. I admit the Da Vinci Code was entertaining. I wasn't ca- really ca- I wasn't Catholic at the time when I read the book and saw the movie. Uh, but however, no, he was totally wrong. Okay, <laughs> he totally made that up. It had nothing to do with the. Div- had nothing to do with any of that. He also said that Nicaea, you know, voted which books were going to be in the Bible and that, you know, gospel and Mary Magdalene was voted out. The gospel of Philip was voted out. All this other nonsense. Yeah. That was, that was never the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's rooted in that faith that passed through the succession of, from the apostles through succession of bishops Right. And ultimately, you know, at Nicaea, it came time to uh, clarify in such a way that would exclude wrong ideas about the sun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it would be further clarified in 381 at Constantinople. But the thing is, Gary, is the church has condemned this heresy. It has. But like we talked about a moment ago, a few moments ago, um, heresies get repackaged. Okay. Um so if I, if I can take a moment, maybe we talk about a couple modern day examples that people may run into yeah, because, they're, because they're still, because they're still out there. Um, one of them is, is the Mormon church, the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. And you may say like, how is, how is that Arianism? Well, they teach that Jesus is the son of God. And depending on who you ask, they may say he's fully divine, but that he wasn't always eternal. Okay. So they say Jesus is created um, by heavenly father that's Mm -hmm. and that jesus and satan are actually brothers okay so that's kind of problematic on its own (laughs) but according to lds doctrine i'm taking these from their sources 
that Jesus is the firstborn spirit son of God. That sounds an awful like what Arius was saying, really. Yeah. And so Joseph Smith later on will go on to say that among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah or Jesus Christ, to whom all others are juniors. So again, he's saying this thing that Jesus was firstborn. He didn't always exist. And this is contrary to the historic view of Christianity like we just talked about. And so they eisegete scriptures and they make they make doctrines out of them. But obviously that's not the only issue we have. Their, their whole thing of the scriptures is different. Of course, they say they adhere to the King James Bible, then they have the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, which also vary widely from what Council of Rome said at 382. But this is what the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith has, has to say in regard to their baptism, and I find it very interesting, Gary. It says, as is easily seen to the similarity of titles, there does not correspond in any way a doctrinal content which can lead to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for the Mormons a meaning totally different from the Christian meaning. The differences are so great that one cannot even consider that this doctrine is a heresy which emerged out of a false understanding of the Christian doctrine. The teaching of the Mormons has a completely different matrix. We do not find ourselves, therefore, before the case of the validity of baptism administered by heretics affirmed already from the first centuries, nor of baptism confirmed in non-Catholic ecclesial communities. That's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, because when a Mormon's <clears throat> baptized, it, it's, it may seem like the Trinitarian formula, but their ideas of those three persons are so totally different from historical Christianity that the church says that the baptism is not valid. So anyone coming into the church from that tradition has to be rebaptized because they were never validly baptized. Right. Um, another big one, and this is one you're well familiar with, Gary, is Jehovah's Witnesses. And for anyone listening, Gary, I got to give a cheap plug here. Go to Gary Machuda, <laughs> go to Gary pick up his series on Jehovah's Witnesses. It's fascinating. Um, this is the most modern. This is when you hear the return modern to Arianism, Jehovah's Witnesses pops up. Because their official doctrinal position, which is very fascinating, says that Jesus is the archangel Michael and was the first created being. And that's taken from the Watchtower website. And their doctrinal manual says that Jesus is the sole direct creation of God. And so in their view, God created Christ and then Christ created everything else, which again, totally off, not historic, not what the Bible teaches, not what the church teaches, wasn't passed down via apostolic succession or sacred tradition. None of that was there. And so the, the canons of Nicaea totally apply to them still. Yes, we can admire them for going around knocking on doors, and we can learn a lot from that. So yes, maybe we should be more evangelistic as Catholics, but at the same time, we need to look at the heresy, call it for what it is, and we have some work to do in regard to, in regard to them. Yeah. But what, if it, what I found fascinating, Gary, was in regard to modernism. Because we hear modernism and we think, okay, we're just trying to modernize the church. Or modernism is we're trying to get rid of, maybe strip down the church from some of its teachings. But when taken to its logical conclusion, we can kind of get some aspects of Arianism in here. Hmm. And so modernism started in the 19th century by elevating human reason as kind of the judge of all things. Now, reason is a great, reason is a great gift from God. I'm not minimizing reason whatsoever. But... 
some modern theologians started denying the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the divinity of Christ. John Shelby, who was a modernist Episcopal bishop in the 19th century, this is what he wrote. The virgin birth tradition of the New Testament is not literally true. It should not be literally believed. Well, red flag. Nope. Sorry. No dice. <laughs> okay. It has to be believed. He goes on to say that Christ did not really rise from the dead and that his divinity is questionable. And so this is what Pope Pius X had to say. Firm faith, I believe, that the church, guardian and mistress of the revealed word, was instituted proximately and directly by the true and historical Christ himself while he sojourned among us, and that the same was built upon Peter, the chief of the apostolic hierarchy and his successors until the end of time. So here we have that notion again, how modernism, and of course that the oath against modernism is on VMPR's website if anyone wants to check it out. Mm-hmm. It's it strips down Christ's divinity as well, and we have to fight against that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, uh, it absolutely does because he's just merely a human, you know, an enlightened human, but just merely a human and. Yeah, uh, fascinating uh, conclusion there, William. I never put the connection of, uh, more, you're right, Mormonism and Jehovah Witness. You know, one thing um, with the Arians was they couldn't understand spiritual generation. They only understood it in terms of natural generation. Like right. when a father begets a son, obviously the son doesn't exist until he's begotten. And since Mormons believe that uh, father God and mother God has a spiritual offspring. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing. It's a very natural conception of uh, generation where right. uh, when we're talking about the almighty God, of course, you have to strip away all those material aspects. Yeah. And what's interesting here is they, they say that the Catholic church, or they say the great church that put the world into heresy. <laughs> that, okay. It, you know, took away the truth. No, no, the church, has always preserved the truth and it's passed down the truth through its bishops from the time of Christ and the apostles up until now. And that's something that we really need to, we need, we need to preserve because like you said about your book, you know, the world's going to a heck in a handbasket, right? <laughs> By the way, I'm looking forward to checking out your book. Awesome. Um, and if we look to the tradition of the church, we help preserve that sanity of what has been revealed through the church, through our Lord, down through the centuries. Amen. Well, William, hey, we only have a little bit of time left. Uh, So what's been cooking on the Bible Catholic Channel? Some good stuff. Um, For those that don't know, I actually started teaching business to middle schoolers, so my content has slowed down a bit. But I'm on fall break now, so that's why I'm here. But, But this past week, I had the blessing of interviewing Scott Hahn. We talked about... Um, historical criticism, the secularization of the Bible. Um, we talked about the, we talked to the founders of Exodus 90. That interview is going to be up next week. And yesterday I interviewed our good friend, William Albrecht oh, yeah. about, awesome. about his, about his book on Mary. And he surprised me. I got on stream, I got on StreamYard. I saw William pop on, we we're talking and then father Capish shows up. So I was really blessed to talk to them for an hour <laughs> yesterday. Awesome. They gave they gave a whole seminary course for that hour. It was a real blessing. So that's what's going on in my channel. <laughs> that's that's great. Well, William, keep up the great work, and thank you so you much too, for Gary. coming on the show. Thank you. All Thanks, right. Rap. 
Yes, William Hemsworth at williamhemsworth.com. Also check out his YouTube channel, The Bible Catholic. Man, it's flowing. It's quick, quick hour. Uh, well, uh, coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Justice Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again next week to do this thing we call Hands On Podcast. Bye-bye, everyone. This is Kevin O'Brien of EWTN's Theater of the Word. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live, interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you.